everyone, and welcome back, and thanks for joining us for another installment of the Sun Devil Source Report podcast. I'm Ethan Tuttle, joined today by Chris Cartman, as we're all geared up for some ASU preseason discussion ahead of Kenny Dillingham's first season as head coach. But before we get to that, earlier on Sunday, we learned ASU self-imposed a postseason ban. Chris, how are you doing to start things off, though? I'm doing fine. It just it just seems like, Ethan, that the month of August has had way more things than is uh, typical. And covering uh, preseason camp and all these things, especially when it's the first year of a new regime, that's hard enough as it is. But then you get into the conference realignment stuff, the postseason uh, ban stuff, and it, it's pretty overwhelming. But we're trying to push through this and get everything that we need up before the season kicks off on Thursday night. Yeah, absolutely. It feels like it's been an absolute whirlwind, but I know you're excited and I'm excited to kind of jump into this preseason breakdown. But like I said, we got to start off with, with that news from Sunday that we learned about with ASU self-imposing a postseason ban. So uh, fans would really like some clarity on, on why it's happening now and, and what it means, Chris. Short answer is I, I really don't understand it myself. And it's another thing that points at ASU's leadership just not really being on the ball. Um, you know, people will remember that I said more than a year ago in conversations that we had on this podcast and on the website that these were very serious violations, level one in nature. There's a penalty matrix that the NCAA Committee on Infractions follows for such things. And that's indicated based upon what we reported about the violations that ASU was going to have a postseason ban in all likelihood, okay? And that could have been done last year ahead of the start of the season. Uh, I think people understood at the time that ASU wasn't going to have a great year. I predicted ASU to be a little bit better than it ended up being. I thought they'd win like five or six games, right? Uh, Things ended up going really off the rails. Eastern Michigan, Herm Edwards gets fired. And then it's like very obvious, oh, no, uh, we could have self-imposed a postseason ban, but now that we're one and two, we can't because it's not going to be accepted. It's like obviously we're not going to make a bull net probably now, right? So that was a major mistake by by the administration. Ray Anderson, uh, perhaps uh, Michael Crow was involved in that. ASU's president, um, and uh, the the result of that maybe because they thought that they would be able to uh, that Herb Edwards would would maybe have a good season and they could ride it through with Herm Edwards, even through whatever sanctions they got, or they didn't believe that uh, the nature of the violations would lead to some such severe punishment. Uh, I'm not really sure the the thinking or the calculus or how many of these variables went into it. But the thing I can tell you very obviously is we reported in February of last year, a year and a half ago, that Herm Edwards directly participated in impermissible recruiting on ASU's campus, off ASU's campus, including uh, at homes that were rented in Paradise Valley specifically for the purposes of recruiting, that uh, the thing was very widespread and that dozens of recruits were involved. And it was just so apparent that this was going to be viewed as as a major case. And so allowing things to drag on so long that this punishment now affects 50 new scholarship players, including a lot of seniors who are new to the roster, 
who haven't played in a bowl before. They're looking for this one opportunity at ASU to to have a postseason. Uh, that was pulled away from them. It was ripped ripped away from them, and especially when they didn't have any ability to go anywhere else. School had already started, right? Transfer windows closed. They're locked into what they're doing. So the timing of it looks kind of suspicious. At least that's the way it will be perceived. And the the impact on Kay Dillingham and what he's trying to do from a, a foundation building standpoint is also extremely disadvantageous. Yeah, you, you alluded to it a little bit. It seemed like ASU could have taken some 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 steps to avoid this happening this season. And of course, Kenny Dillingham's first season as a head coach, it's going to make things a lot tougher. But what are some ways that it could have been avoided this season and happened last season or maybe even the season before that under Herm Edwards and the, the previous staff? Yeah. So first of all, the there's a, a, a new process that's kind of more recent that's called a bifurcated resolution of these things that it involves the um, the NCAA infractions committee. OK, and that's that's member based. It's like, you know, people who uh, represent schools are part of this committee. OK, and that wasn't something that really happened prior to the last year or two when there used to be notice of allegations, then you responded to the notice of allegations and then you had the punishment phase and all this stuff. Now there's actually a back and forth that, that takes place as part of a negotiated resolution in some of these cases. That's what ASU is actually going through. Okay. Problem is that the NCAA looks at three tiers of level one infractions. There are aggravated cases where actions done such as uh, lack of institutional control, cover up, things of that nature were done that make it much worse. Then there's a standard case and then there's a mitigated case. Mitigated means that the school took a lot of actions early to try to show contrition and that it understood that it, that it was wrong and wants to get ahead of any sort of sanctions as quickly as possible. So some of the things that could be done are self-imposing a bull ban early, uh, a postseason ban, uh, firing everybody that's involved. Okay, So Herm Edwards, for example, continued on employed as ASU's coach for many months, maybe even an entire year or close to it, after ASU had already learned about his participation in this through NCAA investigation. So they could have fired him and or others for cause. They could have not paid him $4.4 million, which they paid him at severance, which was half of his remaining salary. They could have also um, self-imposed many more recruiting restrictions, such as a very long period of no unofficial visitors on their campus. Uh, fewer official visitors, uh, more scholarship reduction, uh, fewer contact with recruits in certain periods in which that's allowed, and not going on the road of evaluating prospects during times that was allowed. ASU did some of those steps as, as far as a year and a half ago through 2022, but did not do them nearly to the degree that Tennessee did, for example. And ASU put out a message, uh, a, a, a statement, uh, just within an hour of us recording this podcast, talking about comparing this situation to the Tennessee case. But it, it leaves out some very important things that I just sort of covered. And what happened is Tennessee, which is a 
very similar, but worse in some respects because players were paid money directly, but they fired everybody. They took very harsh uh, recruiting restrictions, self-imposed. And then they were able to negotiate with the committee on infractions a fine that was eight to nine million in lieu of a two-year postseason bull ban. Well, ASU didn't, from my understanding, or I haven't heard that ASU tried to go that route. And ASU could have taken the $4.4 million that it paid from Edwards and in the last month or two instead try to use that money to pay for a one-year bull ban. Had ASU also perhaps been much more aggressive with sanctioning itself in 2022 or even the fall of 2021. So those were ways by which ASU could have perhaps had a little bit of a different outcome now. Yeah, you see how it ends at Tennessee. A lot of folks are wondering when this is going to be completely resolved with the investigation here at ASU. So when can fans expect this investigation to kind of come to a halt and what additional punishments may come along? Yeah, so this is definitely now in the, the very later stages of this process that there, there is an ongoing dialogue with the Committee on Infractions. I don't know if ASU turned in its proposed uh, punishments to get evaluated and approved and or rejected or responded to uh, by the Committee on Infractions. My understanding is Tennessee went through that process multiple times before they were able to come to a final resolution. So that could take some weeks. It could potentially maybe even take a couple months, but we're not, we're no longer in a, in a complete limbotic state where this is going to take another six months or something like that. Like that's not going to happen. And as far as the, the, the additional punishments there, self-imposing a bull restriction is, is significant. And ASU did have some scholarship reductions and some other restrictions. So it, the, the additional punishments may not be very harsh. Like there may not be that many more scholarships that ASU loses as a result of this. They may not have to, uh, you know, take significant reductions of official visits or, or things of that nature. But there will be some of those things that I just said that, that I went through the list of. And then there will also be some sort of a monetary fine, not probably multi-million, but maybe some, some uh, hundreds of thousands or something along those lines. Recently, there's been a lot of people upset with athletic director Ray Anderson on Twitter. There's also people kind of printing some shirts out now. So a lot of attention around Ray Anderson and the athletic director uh, just trending everywhere. It seems like you said Ray should resign following all of this. Uh, is that plausible? What, uh, what may happen there? It seems to me that if that was likely to have ha to happen, it, it would have already happened. Never say never. I've heard that there is, there was a, a group of prominent boosters who sent a letter to Arizona's board of regents expressing their dissatisfaction with Ray Anderson and requesting that he be, be removed as ASU's athletic director. And that that's a big deal. We're going to be reporting more on that. This is news really that I'm breaking right now that we literally found out about within the last hour confirmed to be the case. Um, look, in the past, ASU fans and boosters, they have rallied enough support with threats of removing their money from the university, the athletic department, that it has made an impact. People will remember in uh, the end of 2011 uh, that uh, ASU was trying to hire June Jones to replace Dennis Erickson, and there was a revolt among prominent boosters who did not want that and threatened to pull their money out. 
which uh, stems largely from our reporting on that at the time, which then led to ASU pulling out of the very end of negotiations, even after June Jones's agent, Lee Steinberg, was on the radio locally selling the benefits of what ASU would be getting in June Jones and ESPN reporting that, that the deal had been done with June Jones. And Todd Graham ended up being the head coach a couple of weeks later. I don't know if Michael Crow can be reached in a similar way this time via an outpouring of uh, sentiment by boosters, but it, it, it seems at least uh, plausible based upon what has happened in the past. But I don't think Ray Anderson is going to resign unless he's asked to do so at at this point in time. Uh, he has uh, a, contra- a contract that lasts through, I think, February of 2026. But the problem here, Ethan, is that Kenny Dillingham needs uh, as, as much money flowing into ASU both in terms of direct contributions to the program and also in terms of NIL contributions that can be used through the Sun Angel uh, 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 NIL Collective and other entities that can help pay to keep the roster healthy and improving uh, over the next couple of years. Absent that, it makes it very difficult to build a good foundation of success under a new coach. And so this is something that we're going to be talking a lot more about in the coming days and weeks. Yeah, fans and site subscribers should stay locked on to sundevilsource.com because there's going to be a lot of information coming uh, coming into there and coming into the message boards and just a ton of discussion happening uh, ar- around this whole uh, discussion of the investigation as, as it continues to go on. But let's go ahead and wrap up that conversation and Bring in source reporters Noah Furtado and Jake Seymour for some more discussion as we're going to talk some X's and O's and, and kind of give a little bit of offensive breakdown to begin things, really. Uh, but first, uh, Jake, how are you doing today, man? Doing good, Ethan. Thanks for having me on. Of course. And Noah, how about you? It was good to be back on the podcast, um, back with the team. So we're going to get into a lot of stuff here. I'm ready. Absolutely. We got a really big. We got a really big team doing really big things. I think Drake said that. Am I wrong? I think that's a Drake quote. Okay. Let's keep we'll, it moving. We'll go. We'll go with it. Yeah. Onward. So on to the offensive strength. As, as we've got uh, a ton of new guys on this offense, both at quarterback, running backs, and new wide receivers, a ton of guys uh, out there that, that seem explosive. So, Jake, why don't you go ahead and kick it off? What are you most excited uh, to see with this offense this season, and what do you think their biggest strengths are? Yeah, I think their biggest strength is the pass catching ability from the receivers and tight ends. It's kind of uh, what everyone's pointed to this offseason and heading into the season, but it's really something that could be the strongest point of this team. You have Elijah Badger returning, Jalen Conyers, who kind of led the receiving core last year. Um, and then you bring in guys like Xavier Guillory, um, and you have you know improvements um too just across the board on their depth chart that could really uh, make some strides this year in the receiving core. Um and both of those guys too that I mentioned, Badger and Conyers, uh, they're both really motivated uh, for personal goals as well as team success. Uh, with Badger striving for the top five uh, in reception yards, as well as Conyers uh, hoping for the reception, um, you know, kind of record there as well. That's held by Chris Coyle. So both those guys are really motivated um, and, you know, they're hoping to play to get to that next level. So something that, um, you know, they could maybe translate that into team success. Absolutely. Yeah. Elijah Badger, 866 yards receiving last season. So uh, like you said, he's just trying to continue building on that. Noah, uh, what's your stance on the offensive strengths for this season? 
I'm going to take it a step further. I think it's not just the pass catching ability, but it's the mix with Jaden Rashada's big play uh, potential. Uh, the fact that he can connect uh, on deep balls with great accuracy, as we've seen, especially uh, in recent weeks. Um, when you have guys like Badger, Guillory, who have the speed to test defenses vertically, um, you now have a quarterback who can essentially maximize that. Um, so I think when you're looking at their strength, that's ASU fans can expect a lot um, of big plays. And I think when you have also, you look at the running back room, There's it's not like it's hit or miss on, on those deep balls. I think they do have uh, running backs who have shown an ability to be able to catch balls decently well uh, out of the backfield as check down options. Uh, Rashada, uh, more so in the fall than in the spring, um, has shown a greater willingness, I think, to work through reads and get to uh, certain later progressions. So um, he he has essentially, you know, been been good with also not just, you know, focusing on making a play every single time, but just getting the ball into the hands of his playmakers. So, you know, as far as the running backs, Cameron Scadabo to Carlos Brooks, uh, there's solid options there. Uh, even even Scadabo, um, he may not make a lot of guys miss, but he has he has good hands. So um, I think there's a good balance between those strengths that you can we can at least see as strengths before the first game gets underway. So with with Rashad at quarterback, there's different possibilities there. Chris, let's have you weigh in. What have you observed so far and what have you seen as some of the biggest strengths on the offense uh, coming into this season? Right. So this is, in my opinion, one of the strongest passing weapons teams that we've seen ASU's have in recent years. And that's sort of saying a lot, right? Because they have had Nikhil Harry, Brandon Ayuk, and other really big seasons recently. Devin Lucien had a really big year. Uh, that one season that he was at ASU. But the reason that I feel that way is because they have more very good options. Like, you could say that the the season that ASU had Harry and then Ayuk's first season, and then they had Darby as a vertical threat, that was a very good one, two, three. But I don't think ASU is any less than that right now with Elijah Badger, Xavier Guillory, Jalen Conyers, who has to be included in this conversation because he's a pass catcher who's going to be playing effectively a wide receiver kind of a role. And then Melquan Stovall and, and Geo Sanders, who also both look quite good. I mean, let's remember, Geo Sanders had 40 catches last year, right? And he might be sixth or fifth or something in, re in receptions this year for ASU. They also have Troy Mire. They have Andre Johnson. These guys look very good for like your fourth or fifth or sixth receiving options, right? So the depth of the talent and the caliber of the talent is both very good at the top end, right? You, you, uh, Elijah Badger will threat could threaten a thousand receiving yards this year, right? But he might not because you have a lot of weapons that you can throw the football to. I looked at last year. Kay Dillingham's offense with Oregon, Bo Nix threw 3,600 yards roughly. And the team rushed for 2,800 yards. Well, that is a crap ton of yards, right? But nobody 
on the team had more than 891 receiving yards and 61 catches, Troy Franklin. So the question is, as I see it, how much the ball can be spread around and how much that that makes it a lot more difficult for opponents to be able to defend ASU. That's a huge part of this, right? Because if you got uh, safety coverage rolling over to Elijah Badger all the time, that makes it a lot more difficult. But now you got Xavier Guillory on the other side. You got Conyers. You got slot guys who can work underneath. You can throw the ball to your backs, uh, who have shown that they have the ability to make to to, to do a good job. And I think that uh, even though the backs aren't maybe as as high end as some of the guys that have been at ASU recently, they fit from an ideology and a what what they do um, very well for this scheme. So those are all the strengths that. It's something that makes it a little bit easier when you have Jane Rashada back there. You might get more uh, big play touchdown opportunities than would otherwise be the case, which I think is a big part of the reason why Kane Dillingham went with Rashada, which was before he learned of the NCAA, um, the the self-imposed postseason ban. Um, And Rashada has looked very good recently. but as we'll talk about here in the in the, the the drawbacks or negatives segment that follows, that is very much going to be a focal point of uh, the season. Yeah, you you mentioned it. There's plenty of guys with with explosive power um, and guys to watch out for on the offensive side of the ball. But with with a lot of good, there there always comes some bad as well. So Jake, let's go over to you and why don't you uh, tell us some of the negative um, things you've you've witnessed so far. Um, from ASU on the offensive side of the ball. Yeah, it's kind of cliche, but, you know, football is a game that's won and lost in the trenches. And I feel like ASU's offensive line is probably, uh, you know, the weakest point on the offense so far. Um, And that's, you know, for a multitude of reasons. And one of them being that there's been a lot of movement so far on that line. Um, You know, we've seen players rotate in and out at the tackle positions, uh, even sometimes on the interior as well, um, just depending on the day. Um, And I think they've been pretty solid when it comes to run blocking and actually, you know, getting movement up front for uh, its running backs. Uh, but where they really struggle is in the pass blocking. And we've seen that on one-on-ones um, consistently where the defensive line, um, you know, because we take tally of all that and we've seen the defensive line win a lot of those one-on-one battles uh, and the offensive line kind of struggle on that aspect. And you combine that with a freshman quarterback uh, and Jaden Rashada, and that could be, uh, you know, be some issues for ASU. Noah, what are your thoughts on um, some of the struggles of the ASU offense right now? I think given Rashada's experience uh, in game settings, we could see uh, some negatives that uh, can counteract how how many big plays that that we can expect from him and from that receiving core we just talked about. Um, I haven't personally seen him uh, struggle with that in you know in practices. I think Dillingham, since the spring, has really emphasized to to him to to all the quarterbacks that um, you know sacks are quarterback stat right. And in that sense, you know, they have, I think, taken in that information. I just think it's a matter of when games start going, um, the atmosphere is a little bit different. And we're going to have to see how uh, Rashada's processing transitions, um, or I should say translates, you know, to those, to that environment, because it's far different, you know, when you're in the Dickey Dome and even with the simulated crowd noise in there, it, it doesn't really measure up you know, to when you have to, you know, stay composed and, you know, make decisions that may lead to throwing the ball away on any given possession to preserve um, a second and 10 um, as opposed to a second and 15 or second and 16. 
Uh, I'll bring this up. They had their one minute drill. Um, yes. In yesterday's practice, it was obviously on the whole, a very good outing um, for, for Rashada, but the play before um, he threw a 50 yard touchdown, 50 plus yard touchdown to Sean Charles. He, uh, he took a sack uh, kind of coming up uh, through, through the interior there, uh, which set up a third and long. So, I think we could see uh, a lot of those situations where, um, you know, we, we get these catastrophics as Dillingham has described them, uh, given sort of Rashada's uh, youth um, that can also sort of be balanced out by how uh, explosive he makes this offense with, with the weapons that are available to him. So, so yes, obviously the offensive line plays into that, but I think um, that's going to be something that we have to monitor uh, as he progresses uh, because obviously his week one start uh, may not carry over to week two or week three. It just kind of depends. And that's going to be something that we we keep an eye on here moving forward. Chris, what are some of what's your gauge on how much Rashada's um, needs to improve and where he's struggling most so far for the offense and just some of the other offensive struggles as well? Well, yeah, I think uh, any conversation about the start, the the, the weakness of ASU's offense has to begin with pass protection concerns, as Jake said. Um, I believe that last year, Isaiah Glass was, had the lowest pass protection grade of a starting offensive tackle in the Pac-12, and Emmett Boley was not much better than that. And so those guys are back. I was looking to see what, how much that they might be improved this offseason working with the new offensive line coach in a new system. And there, it is a little bit tough to calibrate because BJ Green and Clayton Smith and others look like very good pass rushers, but exactly how good are they? And how much of that is because Isaiah Glass and Emmett Bully and others aren't great or very good or average? We I don't know. Like, are they average? Are they below average? Are they bad? I don't think that they're good offensive tackles in the Pac-12. Like, if you were to rate everybody who's a starting offensive tackle. Um, and a good example of that is that Bram Walden is very clearly pushing Eastside Glass and could take a lot of reps and or even maybe start in the first game or subsequent games. The interior pass protection, I think, is better. Lee Faututan, who's probably ASU's best Offensive lineman at center. Joey Ramos uh, could potentially be their second best offensive lineman at, at right guard. Um, one of the things that's disappointing for ASU is that Aaron Frost, who transferred from Nevada, was expected to contend for a starting tackle spot. He was a very good player, all-Mountain West player and NFL prospect prior to tearing his ACL a year ago and missing the season at Nevada. And we haven't seen him be out there as one of ASU's better offensive tackles or offensive linemen at all right now. And that's on top of losing Ben Coleman before Trinball even started as a Cal transfer to a catastrophic lower leg injury. So they went out and they got, they added Cade Briggs from Texas Tech. He could play center or guard. He had a ligament issue in his hand that, that kept him off the field a lot last year. That's why he didn't really play that much. They added Sione Finau from Purdue. He was their top backup interior lineman, and he started the uh, the 
whatever bowl game that they played it against LSU where they got just destroyed, Citrus Bowl, I think it was. And though these guys look very, I would say, average at best, other than Fautanu, the, the 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 newcomers, and Walden, you know, we'll see how he does. But this area <clears throat> is not what you want to have as a weakness when you have such great pass receivers and a freshman quarterback who's being thrown on the fly and needs a lot of protection. So that makes the job tougher on Rashada to assimilate and get into a good flow of things. Dillingham has done a very good job with quarterbacks in the past, making it manageable. We've seen when, pardon me, when they went to game planning, Rashada did a lot better because it's a lot more narrow things that he has to focus on. And so he's flourishing with the game planning. So that's a very good sign. But in agreement with what Noah said, there's going to be turnovers that are kind of ugly at times. There's going to be sacks that are ugly. And so you're going to see probably some ups and downs that are more significant than a typical ASU team because he offers really big play capability, but also this very much youthful thing. And very importantly, I want to say as part of this, went back and looked, ASU's had seven, nine win or more seasons in the last 40 years. Six of those teams were quarterbacked by someone who was at least in his second year starting at ASU at quarterback. And some of them were third year or fourth year starters, like Jake Plummer. A guy like Jake Plummer struggled significantly 1993, when he was a freshman, true freshman, he replaced, um, I forget, maybe Grady Benton, or he replaced somebody. 1994, ASU was bad, had a bad team his sophomore year. He wasn't very good, threw a lot of interceptions, made a lot of mistakes. But by 1995, he was good. 1996, he was great, and it was a special season. Andrew Walter came off the bench when he was young, a sophomore, a redshirt sophomore maybe, and played really well, and then became the all-time record holder and touchdown passes in the Pac-12 after three years. So you're going to get all of these learning freshman moments by Rashada, but if he does even reasonably decent, that sets up things for a very improved passing attack even next year, even if you do lose some of these guys, and a much better overall offensive team, especially when you add another year of division one transfers to sort of bolster your kind of weak areas. Let's go ahead and take the discussion to the defensive side of the ball and, and kind of gauge some of the strengths um, for the defense. Jake, what's your take on, on the defense this year and, and where they've kind of made some improvements through the fall and what you expect to see out of them uh, this season? Yeah, the, de- the the defensive line has been really solid uh, for ASU this, this preseason camp. Um, you know, we've seen guys like uh, Deshaun Mallory kind of step up and take a leadership role. Um, as well as even Tristan Monday, who, uh, you know, they don't really have that 300-pound center uh, that, you know, is pretty much accustomed to some defenses. Uh, they don't have that. Um, but Tristan Monday is a guy who's kind of stepped up uh, on and filled in some of the tackle depth uh, on the depth chart so far. Um, even just yesterday, we were watching him. Um, they were doing a kind of like a t- uh, hitting drill where they were working on getting strength from their arms. And they were doing it up against the big towers they have uh, that the film crew uses. And while he was hitting it, um, you could just see kind of the strength that he has um, and, you know, the violence of the tower was shaking as he was doing it. Um, and Vince Amy was really pleased um, with his strength on that. 
Um, and then just a player to watch that they've kind of been trying to use more and more, uh, especially on the inside, um, is Garen Stansbury. Um, one of the things I've been working with him is using his entire arms to generate power rather than just his wrist, because um, he has that length. So if he's able to generate that power from his arms, he's able to you know probably beat some of those um, offensive linemen who are a little bit shorter and have a uh, shorter reach. Absolutely. Yeah. Lots of strength and speed on the defensive line. Uh, Noah, what are your thoughts? I think my focus here would be the defensive ends more so. Um, I'm going to be careful to say not to say that their depth there is is unbelievable or anything that's, um, you know, too over the top. But but really, they have four or five defensive ends that could be regular contributors throughout the season. Uh, we've talked about or mentioned uh, guys like B.J. Green and Clayton Smith, who've really kind of established themselves uh, from the spring till now as, um, you know, potentially premier pass rushers for this group. But even beyond them, you have Michael Matus, who's back in the fold. You have Prince Thorba. You have Garen Stansberry, as Jake just described, things that he's working on. Um, th that That's a pretty deep group. And even beyond that, you bring in a Juco um, guy like Elijah O'Neal, who has been seeing, uh, you know, more team period reps in recent practices, and his upside is there at least. I don't, I don't know how often uh, he'll actually play because of the four or four, five other guys that are ahead of him, but um, they they prove to they may prove to be uh, formidable uh, outside. Clayton Smith mentioned this specifically: the the speed between him and B.J. Green it it, uh, it works itself out, you know. Uh, on the whole, or at least he expects it to in terms of, you know, if you're going too fast or you mess things up, um, that's ultimately a good thing for them uh, as, as he sees it. And, you know, as far as we can tell, going up against ASU's tackles, that has been the case. So so now it's a matter of, of seeing how that measures up uh, against other teams. I think against Southern Utah, that, uh, that won't be a problem. I would expect them to be dominant in that uh, opening showing. Um, but based off of that, I think you can also expect to see some solid performances in the secondary, because when you have that kind of a pass rush, it takes the pressure off of them to some extent. And, and among that group, you have returning starters. You have Roe Torrance back uh, at one of the cornerback spots. He has only improved. He, he's been he's been solid. Um, one of the guys who you can expect to see with the first team pretty much every day Um Next to him, you have Jordan Clark in the nickel. Um, he, he has, you know, been reliable, um, I think is the way to say it, uh, throughout the preseason camp. He's one of the leaders of this team. And then in, in the secondary, you also have guys like Chris Edmonds, uh, Shamari Simmons. So, so there's, solid, um, there's solid guys in those spots. Uh, I wouldn't say that there's there's top-end elite talent necessarily that compares to uh, what we can project for the defensive ends, but in terms of how things work together, the pass rush helps um, you know those those DBs do their job. It makes it easier for them. So I think um, we can expect to see a, a good combination you know between those aspects of the defense. And then Chris, what's been catching your eye on the uh, defensive side of the ball as far as strengths go? Yeah, good stuff, guys. Um, clearly, ASU has some synergy, as Noah was talking about, between its pass rush 
capability and its ability to cover on the back end. Those things always go hand in hand. The better that you, the better that you can cover, maybe the more that some coaches might trust bringing more pressure. Some people are the opposite, but Brian Ward, ASU's defensive coordinator, has told us that he is very aggressive. He said he's an eight out of ten on the aggression scale. I asked him this question. He said, "I said Todd Graham is a ten, you know, reckless, you know, and in, in, <laughs> to a lot to a large degree at, at times, especially at the the latter portions of his tenure at ASU, 2015, 16 in particular." Um, where are you on that scale? And Ward said he, he's an eight. They the Correct me if I'm wrong, guys, but the goal really was 40 sacks and 30 takeaways uh, that, that 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 he sets as his you know, pie in the sky ideal. And but they accomplished that when, when he was at Syracuse one year, even though they had a very good defense at Washington State last year, top three in a lot of categories. They didn't. They weren't uh, that close in terms of the, the takeaways or the sacks. But it just goes to show you that this defense is predicated on bringing a lot of five-man pressures, trying to stop the run on the way to the, the the quarterback, and they have guys who fit that in terms of their 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 talent and their overall ability. So B.J. Green looks like by far he's in the best shape of his career, ready to play outside, inside. He's more he's, the skills developed. Everything looks great. Um they're going to turn them loose. Remember, ASU's defense last year probably blitzed the fewest of any teams in the Pac-12. They almost never blitzed. It was painfully obvious to me at the time that they were not deploying their personnel as good as they could have or should have. So then they added Clayton Smith from Oklahoma. He looks like he's the best speed rusher on the edge. And Deshaun Mallory, very good interior defensive alignment. He's their best player that they have on the inside, I would say. Uh, and he's uh, multifaceted. He's in great shape. He's, he's optimized his body. Uh, he can kind of do it all. And on the back end, you have something that I want to highlight that's in addition to what was said is that Ed Woods, who was a starter last year, looks like one of the more improved guys on ASU's roster. And Mason Williams, who isn't going to even start because ASU's got enough talent between Roe Torrance and Ed Woods and Jordan Clark, the starting nickel, that Mason Williams is almost like an odd man out, especially when they also added D Ford, who has a chance to start out of Austin P. And I think what you're going to see is a three-man rotation at corner, Roe Torrance starting playing a lot, the other spot seeing a lot of both Ford and Ed Woods in some combination. Ford's undersized, but he's very physical and – He's quick and he redirects. Just got to see how he handles playing more athletic, bigger receivers at the catch point at this level. Uh, that's that you know, we're gonna find out. But but I do think that the, that combination is very good. Um, and clearly, those are the strengths of ASU's defense. Yeah, I've seen a lot of praise headed towards uh, Ed Wood's direction from DB coach Brian Carrington throughout. ASU's uh, practices uh, ahead of this week one game. So let's uh, talk about some of the defensive struggles, though. Jake, you earlier mentioned um, the the pass rush capability that the ASU defense is going to have. What might be some of the struggles within that group and uh, other spots on the defensive side of the ball? 
Yeah, I think the defense, you know, what I kind of said, is going to be one of those uh, stronger assets on the team so far. Uh, but one of the weaker points on the unit is probably going to be the linebacker core. Um, and I think a part of that is because coming into the season, ASU was was, was looking to have uh, Travion Brown and Juwan Mitchell uh, probably be, you know, they were kind of competing for those two starting positions at linebacker. Um, and then Mitchell was dismissed um, and found a home at Colorado. Um, and because of that, they've had to rotate in a lot of linebackers. Um, pretty much every two plays uh, on team times, they're rotating linebackers in and out. Um, and that's, you know, mainly due for the fact that Will Schaefer will be suspended for the first half of Southern Utah because he was ejected from the Arizona game. So he's still serving that uh, penalty for, because it was from the last game of last season. Um, but even still, you look at it, um, you know, Tate Romney has looked solid, um, but just not really getting that consistent reps. Um, it's pretty much been the only position that hasn't um, had those consistent reps with his starter so far. It could be uh, a flaw for this linebacker core. No, what are your thoughts on, on some of the struggles of the defensive side of the ball? When you look at the interior of the defensive line, um, moving from defensive end to the, the defensive tackles, um, we talked about Deshaun Mallory, and, and he's great. Um, but I think beyond him, there, there's some depth concerns with that particular position group. Um, obviously, you have Anthony Cooper. You have C.J. Fights. C.J. Fights a freshman. He's got good upside. Um, but beyond some of those guys, um, you're going to be rotating, you know, defensive tackles in and out throughout the game. And, you know, Sam Benjamin, Tristan Monday, the, some younger guys um, are probably expected to, to get a good amount of snaps at those positions. Um, and I'm not confident that they're necessarily ready for the volume that they may get, um, at least early in the season. Um, we're going to have to judge and maybe reevaluate um, as, as things go on. But, but that's one of my concerns with the group and that kind of then uh, moves up to, to the linebacker as well. It, it kind of plays hand in hand in that uh, run stopping capability of this defense. I think that's still to, to be determined um, is, is the nice way to put it. Uh, they've been continuously rotating uh, five or six linebackers during team periods uh, in and out. Obviously Will Schaefer won't be available in the first half of the Southern Utah game. But um, he'll probably get a lot of uh, a lot of looks next to Travion Brown eventually. Um, but it, you know that that group even doesn't seem like it has you know a front runner guy that that can really anchor um, anchor them. And I think that's that's something that you know last year's team even uh, actually had right with with Merlin Robertson, Kyle Soley, some veteran veteran guys there. Travion Brown comes in. Uh, hasn't been necessarily a starter everywhere. He, he's been in college football a long time, right? Uh, but it, it's still a matter of trying to, you know, pull together experience there that isn't necessarily available, um, especially when you go further down the depth chart. Yeah, no, I liked how you kind of mentioned the the flip-flop from last season compared to this year with Kyle Soley and Merlin Robertson not here anymore. It seems like there is kind of a, a lack of leadership within that specific, specific room. Uh, and there are some question marks still hanging over uh, the linebacker room and, and who's going to be the, the consistent guys there. But Chris, really quick, let's get your take on uh, some of the defensive struggles. In, in prior years, the weaknesses of ASU's team were less discernible than this year. We, we talked about offensive tackle, pass rush, Number one on offense, very clearly. Number two, quarterback situation. Uh, 
when you're playing a freshman. On defense, I think it's very similar. It's, it's pretty apparent. It's through the middle of your defense. Defensive tackle, linebacker. Sean Mallory looks quite good. Anthony Cooper moving inside from defensive end to defensive tackle. Uh, he has a chance to have a solid season. What we've seen in practices in the last several days, for reasons that maybe we can't entirely discuss, Tristan Monday has been starting, transfer from Wisconsin as a as a tackle. Dan Benjamin is is playing an awful lot with the number with the twos, and that is an indication that ASU is not ready with a lot of experienced players at this level to be able to have the type of impact that you want to have from those interior positions, stopping the run in particular is, is a little bit of a question. And then linebacker, right? Uh, Trey Brown is uh, a solid, good player. Was at Washington State last year, knows the scheme, already played for Brian Ward and A.J. Cooper, but he hasn't been a starter. And you can't necessarily expect top end performance in the Pac-12, maybe more middle-of-the-road performance. And Will Schaefer probably will be the other starter, not in the first game, as mentioned, but the linebacker group overall is not as good, I don't think, as several other or most other places on the roster. Now, a good news thing for ASU as it relates to this is that's one of the less important areas probably now in college football. It's We've gone to so much passing and spread, and not as many teams are just going to hammer you nonstop running the ball between the tackles. And that makes it a little bit easier to, I don't want to say hide lesser players, but not have your better, your, your, your best players be linebackers and get away with that. Okay. Uh, whereas maybe that wasn't the case in a different era of football. Um, but they're going to be really aggress- aggressive. This is going to be a team that's probably quite fun to watch because it's like they're going to throw a lot of bombs. They're going to bring a lot of pressures. They're going to try to hide their weaknesses. They're going to try to stop the ball, stop the run on their way to the quarterback. And they're going to play a lot of man coverage. There'll be some opportunities for some Big hits on the quarterback. Uh, try to get some generate some turnovers that way. There are going to be opportunities and man coverage for guys on the perimeter. And I think that ASU's defense could end up being pretty solid. Like, you know, if not in the top three or four of the conference, that may be a stretch. But in that next tier, I think very conceivable. Chris, you just gave a couple of big things that ASU fans can keep their eyes on. And we're going to come back to you again for some more of that here in a second. But I want to head over to Jake and see what he thinks are some of the biggest things that uh, ASU fans need to have their eyes peeled on uh, ahead of this season. I think uh, ASU fans should keep, you know, keep an eye on Jaden Rashad. And it's going to be easy to do that, right? The quarterback, always something that you're going to be watching um, you know, when you're uh, watching the game. But that, to me, is the biggest thing that fans are looking forward to, just um, you know, talking to people and seeing it all on Twitter is that they're excited to see uh, how Rashad is going to perform this season um, and how he's going to relate to some of those pass catchers that we highlighted earlier, um, you know, how those guys can help him be successful and how Dillingham's scheme um, can, you know, help Rashada and those pass catchers be successful as well. 
No, what do you think uh, some of the biggest things uh, ASU fans are, are looking out for right now? Well, when when you don't have, you know, a starting five up front uh, offensive line wise, uh, you're going to want to sort of pay attention to that. Kenny Dillingham mentioned uh, in his press conference on Monday that um, it doesn't necessarily matter like starters, the first players that are out there on Thursday against Southern Utah, because um, there could be, you know, seven or eight guys that uh, that get some playing time, at least in the early going um, of this season. So, you know, we talked about, or at least we teed up, you know, the competition that's ongoing, it seems between Isaiah Glass and Brian Walden at left tackle. Uh, I think that's an important position in particular, you know, protecting Jaden Rashada's um, blind side, if you will. Um, so that, I think, you know, the, the performance at that position uh, will be important. It, it seems like there's some other spots across the line that could be moved around depending on injuries and things of that sort. But I'd say that that in particular is, is something that, people will want to to keep an eye on and it's easy to look at the you know the stuff that stands out which is Rashad or the receivers Badger Jalen Conyers um but in terms of you know looking in the trenches Jake brought it up you know it's 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 an important thing to keep an eye on and when there's a position battle that still seems to be unresolved um they should uh kind of stay tuned you know with with what we've got going on pay, pay, pay attention to practice reports uh, and see if when, when a final verdict is made there. And then, Chris, let's go ahead and uh, go over to you for, for a couple more of your uh, thoughts on what AFC fans should be looking out for. Well, Kenny Dillingham has these certain things that he likes to say during practices to try to reinforce it in his players' heads. And one of them that he said quite a bit in the first couple weeks of, of, of this, the practices were uh, – 74% of the time, the team that wins the turnover battle wins the game. And with ASU predicted to be somewhere around a four or five win team this year, that turnover margin is going to be very important, even more than ever when you have probably a freshman quarterback that becomes a focal point. If Jaden Rashada avoids throwing interceptions, I think that alone ends up being a one or two game difference in ASU's season so that it's obviously everybody's going to say turnover margin but i just want to reiterate like when you have a freshman quarterback they tend to throw a lot of picks remember jane daniels didn't throw hardly any picks when he was a freshman which contributed to asu having a better season than i think a lot of people expected and then things kind of devolved from there but so that is one uh asu has is very thin at certain spots so you look at safety, for example, right? We expect that Davion Alford's not going to be able to play this year as a second-time transfer. Haven't had any final ruling on that yet, but he's not practicing the last few days. And so really ASU has Chris Edmonds and Shamari Simmons. And then after that, I don't know who's going to be their next safety. So staying healthy is super important. Keep in mind also, even though they have depth at receiver, uh, they also – won't have Jake Smith and uh, they may, they might, they may not have Jordan Tyson, certainly not for some weeks to come because he's, he's injured coming off the of last season. So there's other guys that we haven't mentioned who are, who, who are dealing with injuries that we'll learn more about 
from them not playing in the game and maybe what's said subsequently after that. So you got to stay injury free. And I want to see how the players respond to knowing that they can't play in the postseason after they lose a game or two. Because you can all say all the right things. Like Jake was talking earlier. Hey, these guys, they 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 want to try really hard because they got aspirations and goals and things of that nature. But remember, Ladarius Henderson was pretty vocal about his aspirations, wasn't he, guys? Uh, and then things went south. He was a team leader. He got a broken finger, and he peaced out and went to Michigan. So the point is, is it's very easy to say the, say these things, but when you get into it, let's see how ASU handles adversity. That's what I want to learn. That says a lot about what you're building uh, in terms of your culture and your ideology as a program under a new coach. Because either you're going to probably fight through adversity, be very tough, strong-willed, and determined, or you're going to have some problems. And uh, – you don't, you don't, you, you don't, that would be a very bad sign if they get to November and December and a lot of these things they're still dealing with as struggles. Let's jump into some more quarterback conversation, conversation, excuse me. Uh, Rashad is starting, obviously. Jake, do you think he'll be able to be the guy all season if he's able to stay healthy? Obviously, we talked about some concerns with the offensive line and um, the protection of Jaden Rashada, but what are your predictions for, for Rashad and maybe some of his stat lines as well? Yeah, as long as you're staying healthy, I don't see a reason why he wouldn't um, get pulled because, you know, with a young quarterback, you want to make sure that the quarterback has a, the utmost confidence in himself um, and that he in his ability to lead an offense. So uh, if you pull him in the middle of the season or at some point, barring, of course, you know, an injury or whatever, that could really have an effect uh, on, on a quarterback's confidence. Um, and their ability to lead a team, which could affect um, the future of of his playing time. Um, and if Rashada stays at ASU, his time at ASU. So I think when you start pulling quarterbacks uh, in the middle of the season at this, you know, young of a stage, that can really have um, a large effect uh, on their future in football. And then, Noah, what are your thoughts on Jane Rashada this season? And if he's able to stay healthy, uh, what he can contribute to the, to the offense and uh, how successful will he be? It's reasonable to expect that he will play a majority or, excuse me, start a majority of football games this year for Arizona State. Um, but I, I just want to remind everyone that in the spring, he was the third quarterback. And up until Drew Pine's injury, he was, you know, he was still at that spot on the depth chart. I think that um, particular development helped, you know, advance him and give him looks that he otherwise wouldn't have gotten uh, to really compete for that starting job next to uh, Trenton Bourget. So, you know, I could see um, a possibility where if if Rashada has a speed bump at some points throughout the season that uh, Dillingham, given that he has options, because he, you know, Drew Pine uh, will be, uh, it was expected to be, you know, available at some point later this season, um, I think when when that happens, that'll open up uh, Dillingham to potentially considering options depending on how Rashad is performing. I think, you know, as we said, it's not going to be, you know, everything positive with, with Jaden Rashada. He, he, he's had really good days. Um, he started some practices, I think one in particular where he 
like his first throw was an interception. Um, and I remember Chris tweeting something out like, it's not going to be easy. Um, to Jake's point about some, some confidence concerns maybe with pulling him. Um, I, I might tend to, to think about it a little bit differently. I think it takes some pressure off of him that he may not need to carry the burden of, of, you know, starting an entire season as a true freshman. Um, when you have the luxury of some other viable options with Drew Pine and Trenton Borgay there to, um, you know, take a game, take a game or two to have him take a step back um, and maybe reevaluate if he's having certain weaknesses in game to watch tape to, to sort of take some time and be patient, you know, with his development. So, um, you know, I, I think that's definitely a possibility, but if I was to make a prediction like uh, over under for games, I think it probably would be, um, six of the 12, and I'd expect him to start more than that. Chris, what are your thoughts? Uh, what, what do you expect as far as uh, maybe total number of starts for, for Jaden Rashad this season? I think that the postseason ban makes it more likely that you just roll with Rashad of the whole season. Like, why, why wouldn't you? You, like, you, uh, you're not, like, you can say, that okay, you still owe it to the seniors to put the best team on the field to win as many games as possible to you know do the best that you can. I all that okay, fine, but the reality is there's less downside now to playing Rashad of the whole season. So unless his unless he doesn't emotionally handle it well, because if with, due to struggling, and you and you want to sort of protect him in that way. I think you just keep him on on the field. And I know you're going to ask me this and the others, Ethan, so I'll just get my answer out of the way right now. Uh, I think that Rashada will have somewhere on the order of 2,400 passing yards this year. And uh, I don't know, touchdowns. That's a little bit harder. Maybe like... uh, maybe around 20 touchdowns. All right, Jake, uh, maybe you can go ahead and sprinkle us some quick predictions as well. What are your thoughts on uh, what Jade's going to put up this year? Yeah, so I think uh, for passing yards, I think he'll probably have about 2,500 uh, passing yards, um, you know, especially with that really talented uh, passing um, passing unit that we've kind of talked about so far. Uh, first touchdowns, I'm um, going with 20 touchdowns. Uh, with seven interceptions and a completion percentage of 60%. And Noah, what do you have? Yeah, uh, similar. Uh, I'd say around 2,700 passing yards and and touchdowns. I'm going to go under 20. I'm going to say uh, 17, 17 touchdowns. Uh, would probably depend on whether or not he plays every game or not. But um, I, I think I think that's a general – as a general rule of thumb, those are the numbers I will, I'll go with. Jake, let's throw it over to the running back side of things. Who do you think is going to stand out in that room, and what are some predictions you have uh, for their numbers this season? Yeah, that running back room has uh, diverse talent kind of across the board when you just look at it. Uh, but I think Cameron Scadabo is going to be the guy that leads that room uh, behind DeCarlos Brooks. And I'm thinking Scadabo is probably going to have about 800 yards on the ground. Um, but like I said, Brooks will be a guy that comes in there, and I you know, could see him um, getting a lot of reps alongside that. Um, and then a guy, too, I'm kind of looking at in that running back room is Javon Jacobs, maybe on those third down packages. Um, really, it's kind of an elusive back and brings, um, you know, a diverse skill set transitioning from wide receiver um, to that group as a whole. 
No, let's get some quick input from you on that as well. I'm with Jake on Scatable. Um, I see him maybe getting around 700 to 750 rushing yards. Um, him, him and Brooks, I expect, may, may split some time. So that'll keep him from from going beyond uh, eight, just kind of the 800 to 1,000 yard range. But yeah, I'm going to say 750. I'll lock that in as the final answer. And Chris, anything kind of different for you? What are you thinking there? I'll go a little bit higher. I, I think he'll end up with somewhere between 60 and 70% of the carries. Um, Dillingham split reps quite a bit at Oregon last year, but Sean Aguano's tendency is to, is to want to ride one back. And Scadabo is their most physical and a guy who someone who uh, can handle a heavy workload. So I think maybe he ends up with like 850 yards or so, but they, they there will be two or three others that get quite a few reps out there and probably to Carlos Brooks. Uh, Tevin White has a chance. He's got the talent, but the consistency is not there yet from a practice standpoint. All right, Jake, let's do the exact same thing with the wide receiver room. Who do you think is going to be the standout there and what are their stat lines going to look like? Yeah, I think the standout in the wide receiver room is going to be Elijah Badger. Um, he's coming off the 70 reception year. And I think that's going to uh, increase a little bit uh, this year with uh, 80 total receptions. Um, and like we said, he makes it his goal to be top five in a single season receiving yard record. So um, I think him achieving that thousand yard goal um, is certainly plausible. No, what do you think? I, I still got Badger to lead the room, but I don't expect that his receptions will go up from the 70 last year, uh, especially if Rashad is at quarterback. I think there's uh, more big playability. So I think yards wise, that will go up. Uh, receptions, I think it may dip down to closer to 55, 60, but I think his receiving yards may push uh up to to 900 yards or so he wants to get up to the thousand yard mark i think just given the diversity in that in that room with how many weapons there are and you still got to sort of account for what conyers can do and, and the volume he'll take up so i think he'll be around 900 and chris can you give us your thoughts on the wide receiver room as well well i said i think that rashada might only have 2400 or so passing yards and asu has a lot of weapons that it can throw the football to. So um, there's there's no way to, in my opinion, there's no way to really think that Badger's numbers are, are going to go up that much in light of these things. Like last year, Bo Nix threw 3,600 yards. Oregon had 3,700 passing yards. But the ball was spread around so much that nobody had more than 61 catches or 891 passing yards. So I think uh, Badger's numbers will be pretty comparable to last season at most because other guys are going to get the ball. So I'm going to say 65 catches for 800 yards. All right. Of course, we can't forget about tight end Jalen Conyers. He's going after Chris Coyle's single season reception record this season. Jake, do you think he'll be able to get that? And what are some other predictions for his stat lines this season as far as yards and receptions go? Yeah, I do. I definitely do think he'll be able to achieve Chris Coyle's record uh, this season. Uh, he recorded 30 of his 38 catches. Um, in the, the final five games a year ago um, and really broke out in the second half of the season. So if he's able to take what he did in the second half of the season and translate it uh, into the start of this season and for the entirety of it, um, breaking that goal is certainly uh, within his reach. Uh, I'm going to say he finishes the season with 60 receptions um, uh, on the season so far. And Noah, what are your thoughts on Jalen Connors? Do you think he's going to make a run at it? I don't think he'll get it. Um when I'm looking at sort of the breakdown here, I had Badger around 60 or so recep receptions. 
Uh, I think Conyers will have anywhere from 45 to 50. So I, I'll, I'll say 50 catches for Conyers. Um, there's also a receiving yards record as well. That's around 830 or so. Um, I don't think he's going to scratch that like close to that. Um, I would expect Conyers to have. So in, in total, I would say 50 receptions. Uh, I'm going to go with probably 650. I'm going to say 680 receiving yards. And Chris, what's your prediction for uh, Jalen Conyers' output this season? Yeah, I agree uh, with what Noah just said, probably around 50 catches, um, maybe like 600 yards. I, the big thing, again, is that there's a lot of guys throw the football to. It's it's not that you can't throw the ball more to Jalen Conyers, but you just look at what, what happened to Oregon last year, for example, and this ball was spread around like a lot. You had – uh, you had six six receivers who basically had 300 or more yards. So there's no reason for me to think that you won't have favor. Guillory should have a lot more than 300 yards. Andre Johnson could have 300 or more yards. O'Meara could have 300 or more yards. Um, Geo Sanders is an, is a candidate for 300 or more yards. So I just think that if we're saying that we don't think Jane Rashad is going to throw for 3,000 yards, which nobody said here. Everybody's more like the mid-2000s. And if he ends up being the starting quarterback for the whole season, then some of the other stuff that's being said here seems a little incongruous with that. So I just think that the that the, the more likely scenario is either Rashada has more yards or the ball gets spread around a little, spread around a little bit more than what some other people are saying. So I'm going to say – around 50 and around 600 yards for Congress. Let's hit on the defensive side of the ball really quick. Jake, going back to you, who do you think at the end of the season will be the uh, sack leader uh, on the defensive side of the ball? I think uh, B.J. Green will be the sack leader uh, for ASU this season, um, anticipating somewhere around 10 sacks for him. Uh, he's been really good uh, during preseason camp, and we've seen him um, disrupt the quarterback's throws, um, getting you know getting off on the edge and setting that uh, edge and then working back inside to get to the quarterback. So, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, B.J. Green leads the charge for the sacks this year. Noah, who's catching your eye uh, for the sack leader uh, total at the end of the season? Yeah, as much as I want to be different, I think it's going to be Green, too. Um, Smith might threaten. I, as far as a specific number, I'm going to go with 12 sacks for B.J. Green. That's kind of high, but, uh, you know, he's been he's been so impressive from spring till now. He's shown the consistency, um, and he's got the mindset that he's want he's going to want to do that game in and game out. Um, and I think he's he's got the both the will and and combine that with the talent and the work ethic. Uh, I, th I think that's reasonable to expect from him this season. And Chris, who do you think will have the most sacks? I'm going to go with Clayton Smith, um, primarily because B.J. Green will, will move inside on passing downs, probably, and maybe even some on base downs, depending upon how the team is you know, shaping up at, at tackle. So. I think it's going to be very close. Like I would say maybe Clayton Smith has nine sacks and DJ Green has like eight sacks or seven or something like that. Jake, who do you think will lead ASU in interceptions this year? Yeah, I think Jordan Clark uh, will lead uh, ASU secondary in interceptions this year uh, with five interceptions. Uh, he's been really good in that uh, nickel position uh, through preaching the camp so far. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if he's leading uh, leading the charge on interceptions this year. And Noah, what are your thoughts there? Um, I'm going to go a little bit different. Um as talented as, as Roe Torrance is on the corner, you know, cornerbacks, interceptions, you know, 
it's hard to say that he'll be the one. I think more like Chris Edmonds in the uh, one of the safety spots. Um, he's got ball hawking ability. Um, he had he had three interceptions last year. I think, you know, I I'd probably bump that up one and say he'll lead the team with around four interceptions this year. And Chris, your thoughts? Um, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna say that. Shamari Simmons ends up leading ASU in interceptions with four. All right, Jake, really quick. I want to get your prediction for ASU's season outcome as far as the record goes and what two other of the most predictable outcomes would be. Yeah, so I think they're the most likely outcome for ASU this, this season is a five and seven record um, with their second um, second likely record being six and six. I um, mean, four and eight kind of being their floor. Uh, somewhere in that ballpark is where I anticipate them finishing um, the season so far. And then, Noah, what are your thoughts on that? You no, know, I think I'm going to go a little bit higher. Um, my my prediction would be six and six um, with the floor being five and seven. And I think the ceiling is seven, five. That that might be a little high, but um, I'm optimistic. I, when you When you look at their schedule, I think like I could very easily see them starting four and two. And then there's some toss up games uh, from that point on in, in Pac-12 play. Um, so, you know, when when you look at some of their non-conference, obviously they have Southern Utah. Uh, I wouldn't expect them to really take one from from Oklahoma State, although that is at home. And then you obviously have two more games at home before you have to hit the road against California. Colorado, Colorado is still trying to, they're in a rebuild year, first year with Deion Sanders. So like that four and two, and then from there, you got to win two more games, really. Um, two more games to get to six six and six on the season, potentially. Um, so if I was to rank them, I'd go six and six, five and seven, and seven, five as like the third, third likely. Chris, are you as optimistic as Noah is for this season? No, not quite. I, I just think that the bowl... The postseason ban alone takes me down maybe a, a notch from where I was. I, I've, I've struggled very much between five wins and six wins for ASU. I'm gonna I'm gonna predict six and six, but I think that it's more likely that ASU goes four and eight than seven and five. So six and six, five and seven, four and eight are my three most likely records in order. All right. Thanks, Chris. Let's go ahead and jump into another segment of Pick the Pack as we're going to go straight to Jake. And I'm going to toss these games around to you guys, starting off with uh, USC versus Nevada. USC favored by 38 and a half. Jake, what are your thoughts on that um, as far as a pick? Yeah, I think this one's pretty straightforward. I'm going to pick uh, USC straight up here, and I think they're going to uh, cover the spread as well. And Noah? That's a really high. Um, I'm I'm going to say USC wins, obviously. I think they, they fall just short uh, of the spread there. Yeah, really. High. They had a slow start against San Jose State. Obviously, they, they came back and looked like the real deal in the second half. Uh, Chris, what are your thoughts on this minus 38 and a half against Nevada for the Trojans? Well, USC is going to score more than 50 points, but they might need to get 60 points to cover that line. That's that's a little bit of the, the, the dilemma. I, I'm going to say that they – that they narrowly squeak out a cover. And then for me, I'm going to go with USC in this one. I don't think they're going to cover, but I do have them winning straight away. Uh, I just think that's too many points for the Trojans uh, to put up on the Wolfpack. 
Uh, moving over to Cal now versus North Texas. Cal's a six-and-a-half-point favorite against the Mean Green. Uh, Jake, what do you think about this one? Uh, I think California uh, will win this game. I think it's going to be really close, uh, but I don't think they're going to cover the spread. Noah? Uh, I'm going to take Cal. I'm going to take Cal to cover. Okay. Over to Chris. Uh, also, Cal win and cover. I'll take a Cal win and a cover, too. All right, Oregon State. Minus 16 and a half for San Jose State. Uh, we've already seen one of these teams in action. The other's supposed to be pretty good in the Pac-12 this season. We'll see about that. Uh, but, Jake, what are your thoughts on Oregon State? Minus 16 and a half for San Jose State. Yeah, I think uh, Oregon State's uh, going to win in a close game against San Jose State. Uh, we saw San Jose State um, do pretty well last week against uh, USC. So, uh, I don't think Oregon State will cover the spread uh, for that reason. No, what do you think? Um. Oregon State wins for sure. Um, first game with a new quarterback, DJ Uyunglele. Um, I think I think there might be some offensive struggles there. Uh, I'm going to take them to win, no cover. Like they fall just shy, just shy of the 16 and a half. Chris, do you think they'll cover that 16 and a half and get this win? What are your thoughts? I am going to take Oregon State to win and narrowly cover. I'm going to take Oregon State to get the win, and I'm going to go with no cover on this one. San Jose State keeps it closer than uh, some might expect. Going over now to Stanford, minus three and a half favorites against Hawaii. Uh, Jake, your thoughts on this one uh, for the Cardinal? Yeah, so I'll actually take Hawaii here. Uh, I think, Noah, you can attest this. That flight uh, from the <laughs> from the West Coast uh, to the islands, it could be a long one. So I'll take uh, Hawaii for that reason. Noah, go ahead and give your input here. Um. Yeah, I am not a homer, so I'm gonna I'm gonna go with Stanford to win and cover there. Uh, yeah, that that Hawaii football program. I've sort of watched them growing up, and you know they're not in a great spot right now. So, <laughs> but Stanford to win and cover. And Chris, that line is a very obvious reflection of how tough of a job that Troy Taylor has at Stanford uh, to only be a three and a half point favorite. Like, where's that game even been played? Is that being played at, like, one of the local high schools or something? I mean, give me a break. Hawaii Hawaii football is a joke right now. Uh, I think that Taylor's going to scheme a way to, to cover that line. I think Stanford wins in cover. All right, I'll go with Stanford on that one as well with that cover. Moving over now to UCLA, minus 14.5 favorites against Coastal Carolina. Jake, what are your thoughts in this game? Yeah, I'll take uh, UCLA here, and I think they're going to um, definitely cover that 14.5-point spread as well. Let's go over to Noah. Yeah, I'm not going to overthink it. UCLA winning cover. And Chris? Coastal Carolina makes it very close, but UCLA narrowly wins, no cover. I think UCLA is going to win and, and cover this game. Uh, let's go on to the next one, though. Utah minus 6.5 versus Florida. This is uh, arguably kind of the biggest game uh, of the weekend here in conference uh, on Thursday, I should say, I guess is when this game is going to be played, I believe. But uh, Utah, minus six and a half. Jake, thoughts on this one? Yeah, I was really tempted tempted to uh, pick Florida here, um, but I think I'm going to pick Utah um, in a really close game. I don't think Utah will cover the spread, though. And over to Noah. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm going to take I'm going to take Florida. I'm going to take Florida win outright. And Chris, do you think uh, Florida's got it in the bag like Noah, or do you think Utah's got this one? I'm going to go Utah win and cover. I think that that Utah defense is going to cause a lot of problems for Florida's offense in this game. 
I'm going to go for a Utah win in a cover two. Uh, I think Florida is just not going to be ready here in this week one matchup. Let's go over to Washington. Minus 14 and a half favorites versus Boise State over on the blue turf. Jake, what are your thoughts on this one? Yeah, I think Washington uh, will cover the spread and win today, or excuse me, on the weekend. Um, 14, a point, 14 and a half points uh, for Michael Penix. It's definitely something that um, you know him and his offense uh, can achieve. Yeah, you mentioned Michael Penix. Of course, he's standing out uh, in the Heisman Award watch list. So, Noah, what are your thoughts on Michael Penix and the Husky shot this weekend? Yeah, they're great. You know, they, they came to Sun Devil Stadium last year. Obviously, that was the one they were upset. And I think I think the defense might be the might be again the the counteracting issue there. Um, I'm going to take Washington to win um, and cover. Nonetheless, uh, they'll, they'll put up a lot of points on the like regardless. And over to Chris. High scoring game, uh, Washington to win and cover and score 45 or more points. Yeah, I'm right there with you, Chris. I, I'm going to agree with you on that one. Washington State's a minus 12 favorite versus Colorado State. Uh, Jake, do you think uh, Wazoo covers and gets a win in this one, or is Colorado State going to provide a little bit of difficulty? I think uh, Washington State uh, gets a win here, and I think they also cover a little bit too. Uh, opening weekend, uh, I think they're going to make a strong impression on the first first weekend. Noah? I'll take Washington State to win and cover. Noah's got the Cougars. Chris, who do you have? I'm going with the same thing. I think Jake Dicker's doing a very good job there, and they'll be well prepared. Yep, I'm right there with you guys. Arizona, minus 28 favorites against NAU this weekend. Jake, your thoughts here? I'll take Arizona win and Arizona cover as well. All right. Noah? Um, I'm going to go with Arizona win. I'm going to go with Arizona win and cover. Yeah. And your thoughts, Chris? Uh, bet the over is my thoughts. I think Arizona will put up a lot of points, but NAU will – Get into the end zone, maybe have 13 or 16 or 17 points. But I, I think Arizona is going to put up a big number. Yeah, I think Arizona will win, and I think they'll cover too. Uh, Colorado plus 20 and a half against TCU. Uh, Jake, what are your thoughts here as the Buffaloes head down to uh, Fort Worth? Yeah, I don't think it's been looking good for Colorado uh, week one. I'm going to take TCU here um, and TCU to cover the spread as well. Noah? Um, I'm going to take – TCU to win, uh, no cover, no cover. Chris, let's get this one from you as well. Deion Sanders is going to see his team get curb stomped in this one, and they're going to lose by like 30 points. Yeah, I have TCU getting out of the gate early against Colorado and never looking back, so I think the Horned Frogs are, are going to easily take care of business at home in that one. All right, one game we don't have a line for, at least we aren't able to track it down right now, is Oregon versus Portland State. Let's go ahead and just get a straight-up, flat-out uh, prediction for a win in this game from you guys. Jake, why don't you start us off on that one? Yeah, I'm going to take Oregon here. Uh, I think Bo Nix uh, will kind of have his first uh, first good game of the season um, in, in relative to the Heisman uh, season that he's hoping for. Noah, are your thoughts in line with Jake? Yep. <laughs> I've got nothing to add. Oregon's going to take this one easy. And Chris? Of course, Oregon. Let's go ahead and think uh, or take a look at ASU's game against Southern Utah and go ahead and just do a score prediction as well as a win prediction because there's no line out for that game right now as well. So, uh, Jake, your thoughts on this upcoming week one opener for the Sun Devils? Yeah, I think uh, the Sun Devils will take this one, uh, start off the Dillingham error on the right foot. I'm going with a score prediction of 31 to 17. And, Noah, what's your prediction looking like? That's pretty close, Jake. Um I, I think it's going to be uh, a lot more comfortable 
for ASU. Um, they'll put up a good amount of points against the Southern Utah team. I couldn't even track down some of the roster when I, when I last looked at it. Um, so I'm going to go with ASU wins 41 to 10. And Chris, your thoughts? Should be a total blowout. Uh, ASU 42 to 13. I've got ASU with the win 45 to 14. So that's going to do it for our pick the pack predictions is we're going to have to see how we did on those next week. Um, but until then, I think that's going to wrap it up for this edition of the Sun Devil Source Report podcast. Once again, thank you so much for joining uh, the four of us here today as we had a lot of fun discussing things. And as we mentioned, there's going to be a lot more to stay locked into on the sundevilsource.com website. So make sure you do that. But until next time, for Sun Devil Source, I'm Ethan Tuttle. For Chris Cartman, for Jake Seymour, and for Noah Furtado, thank you so much. And we'll see you next time. <laughs>